almış yarı koynuna hem öpü hem söyledi almış yarı koynuna hem öpü hem söyledi havuzi yarı havuzi yarı havuzi havuzi Welcome to another episode of the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Taylan Gingur, and today I'm joined by Dr. Dennis Turkash, the Fari Said Fellow in Islamic Art at Pembroke College, University of Cambridge. She received her PhD in History of Art and Middle Eastern Studies from Harvard University, where she completed a dissertation on Yildiz Palace. Amongst other things, I'm sure, we'll be discussing architecture fashion trends in 19th century Istanbul, whilst looking specifically at the Yildiz Palace. Dr. Dennis Turkash, welcome. Thailand, thank you for for having me here. It's a, a true privilege. So, Dennis, if we can start with uh, Sultan Abdul Hamid's Yildiz Palace itself, or Yildiz Sarayı, it's a vast palatial complex of buildings of various architectural designs. What attracted you to study this particular nineteenth-century example of Istanbul architecture? Could you perhaps briefly describe to us the complex itself and its constituent parts? Yildiz Yildiz's history begins. Um, when Selim III builds a small pavilion for his mother, Mihri Shah Sultan, in 1795, when, and this is a moment, it marks a moment, um, when the Valide Sultans start managing and inhabiting their own hilltop estates. Another version of it um, is built in Üsküdar, although we don't have a sense of where and what this building looks like. But this is a, a moment when the Valides step out of the palace of the Sultan and reside in reside and preside over their own uh, spaces. Yildiz grows over time as an estate and connects with the large groves, landscaped groves of of Chiran Palace, the shoreline shoreline palace. So, in fact, Yildiz is a composite site, and only when Abdul Hamid accedes to the throne, a few years after he accedes to the throne, he designates Yildiz as his imperial residence because he finds he doesn't like to live in Dolmabahce and he, he, he finds it's, it's, it's drafty and humid and, and hard to inhabit. So moves moves to this hilltop location, to a building that still exists. Um, it's um, now the Yildiz Technical University's uh, dean's office. Um, and it's otherwise known as the Valide Sultan Pavilion or Hünkar Kasr after after um, Abdul Hamid chooses it as his as his little home. And uh, starting in 1878, he builds extensively at Yildiz, extensively and very quickly and in um, affordable um, uh, ways. And so we have uh, a lot. Of timber pavilions at Yildiz, and pure coincidence walked into this site one day and and found it, its decay to be beautiful, and especially the decay of these pavilions to be beautiful, and that's how I started working on it. So, Dennis, what um, what was your in- initial interest in these archives, and uh, when you managed to access these, what uh, were the documents that you you found, and what uh, was was missing? I suppose, uh, like very many Ottomanists, especially working on nineteenth um, century, I, I made my way to the Başbakanlık archives, the Prime Minister's archives in Gülhane, back when it was in Gülhane, and I very quickly realized from the um, online index that the Yildiz archives were vast and are 
material related to its architecture itself was miles and miles long. Um, you would find from 1878 onwards, when Abdul Hamid starts building, um, records of a single building's um, construction from the basement to the rooftop, and it it was init- it was incredibly overwhelming to, to to come across these archives. But there were certain things eerily missing in these construction projects. Um, which were none of the pavilions, none of the timber pavilions that we see strewn about in the the gardens of Yildiz had records like these. Um, so that was very, very baffling initially. And, and then I decided that I would look at the Istanbul University's rare books collection, which we know to be um, composed of Yildiz's libraries, books, and manuscripts. And it's relatively difficult to navigate through the archives of this this particular um, place um, because you need to sort through the card card catalogs to find what you're looking for. And what I found in these card catalogs over, you know, working there for, for a long time is that Abdul Hamid was greatly interested in timber pavilions, um, ones that were manufactured in places like Sweden, um, like Norway, uh, or like Odessa. And he would select ones that he liked and would have them uh, delivered and uh, put together in a site of his choosing in his palace grounds. And uh, these catalogs are there, and and they're they're wonderful, and they actually ha- often have the earmark um, of the patron who chose what he wanted to choose, and 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 wrote a little note down saying this is the building that I want. So this is the real journey of my dissertation began is is when I found these um, these catalogs. So that's really interesting. You you found what could perhaps be described as catalogue magazines of prefabricated wood and timber buildings that uh, would be circulated, and um, they would be choosing the, uh, the 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 buildings from those. These are from about the eighteen seventy eight period onwards, as as you said. I I think our, our listeners would be quite surprised to to hear of the existence of these. Are there any unique elements to these, or any surprising elements to these that's that's worth mentioning? Yes, they come into existence as a as a fad, um, a global fad, after the 1867 Universal Exhibition in Paris, where we have the first instance of countries representing their their unique architectural style. And in 1867, it seems to be Norway leading the bunch with its its representation of log cabins. Um, especially with sort of dragon heads. This is also a, a period in time where um, nations are looking at their medieval history to find the real artisanal, unblemished artisanal hand in production. And and the medieval era for most of the nations wins the bait. And starting in 1867 onwards with the, the Universal Exhibitions, the World Exhibitions, there is an explosion of, of, of these types of buildings being manufactured. And the Norwegian house type uh, gets adapted into various other types, and the most lasting of which 
is is the Swiss chalet. Um, the Norwegians call it the Norwegian style, but the Swiss call it the Swiss chalet. And somehow the chalet, as a designation, wins, takes over. When you look at these catalog magazines, you will find that the producer will uh, will actually list the medals that uh, that his company won in the world world's exhibitions. And oftentimes, the richest buyer will go for the building that wins the medal. For example, the Egyptian viceroy, Abbas Hilmi, in his memoirs, well, his wife's memoirs, you you find that he actually goes for the the prize-winning chalet that then is brought over and is installed in his his massive estate in Chubuklo, um, on the Asian side of, of Istanbul. So do these catalogues have uh, buildings of different styles from different countries or are they uh, catalogues that are specific to each country and they all send uh, their, their perspectives to the, the, the Ottoman court? Or can we also perhaps identify a national style in these catalogues that uh, are, are variable, that are noticeable? In some cases, you will find a reference to an Italian Tuscan villa, for example. But oftentimes... It's the chalet form in various iterations is what you get in the list, unless you are interested in other structures, other other functional structures like a school or a church, or more menacingly, perhaps, if you have a colony, there is a certain colonial type uh, that looks like a panopticon. It's a, it's a it's a structure that has a, a a deep veranda on all four sides that could be placed in a hilltop in a in a colony like the Belgian Congo. Um, so in these catalog magazines, at the later later pages, you will have um, built versions. You'll see built versions of these colonial chalets. So. Um, you know, I think the, the the catalog magazines don't really make a claim for a national style, but uh, but they do offer, you know, the, the the sort of Swiss healthy Swiss log cabin cabin option in in various forms that you can make your own. And it seems that these different types, these different styles, uh, end up in some kind of an eclectic mix in the Yildiz complex. So we see. Correct me if I'm wrong. We have inferences of English, Italian, Swiss, and French styles in in one complex. So how does that all come together? Does it does it make sense, or do we see that uh, potentially from the outside that uh, it's all a bit too mixed up? From the outside, it looks like it's a, a little too mixed up, primarily because there's a sort of a clash of materials. So. Uh, when Abdul Hamid arrives in Yildiz, there are buildings, they are masonry structures, mostly of the of the mid-Tanzimat era, 1850s, uh, 1860s, where um, there's sort of apartment types that have very simple neoclassical features. And he, I think, very deliberately chooses to um, challenge or to... Um, to counter these structures that represent uh, two preceding sultan's tastes by bringing his own, which he chooses chooses to be timber structures that look like chalets, basically. And the most monumental of these, which is not a prefab, but is based on prefab models, or it's based on the fad for the Swiss chalet, global fad for the Swiss chalet, is the structure that we know to be the chalet kiosk, uh, which is built, um, which Abdul Hamid um, 
commissions to be built for his ally, the German Emperor Wilhelm II's visit to Istanbul. And the structure then gets expanded on his second visit, and it, it really sort of sits right at the most um, at the heart of Yildiz, at its uh, at its most favor- favorable spot in terms of uh, its gardens and uh, its views. So I think that leads on quite well to my next question, which is this question of diplomacy to use these timber structures or various different structures uh, for diplomatic uh, aims and and uses. You, you mentioned uh, the German Kaiser. Are there any other examples of how these structures are being used to forge relationships or at least influence potentially ambassadors or any other envoys? Abdulhamid II liked intimate spaces, I think, for his uh private life as well as for his public presence or his presence as a as a sultan to uh, to to delegates and to ambassadors and to um, other heads of state so if the grand shalik kiosk for wilhelm ii is 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 one sort of monumental example he actually so abdulhamid ii builds one for the qajar shah uh, muzaffaruddin when he uh, visits istanbul in 1902 there's a bit of a debacle as to how to greet this, the Shah, the, the head of a, a Shi, um, predominantly Shi country. And so Abdulhamid doesn't, doesn't actually go to welcome him at the shoreline of, of Dolmabahce, but, but decides to have him come up to Yildiz. And, um, and the solution is to greet him in a, in a prefabricated kiosk that they put together in, in, in two short weeks. And this this structure, this weird structure that they call a gem kiosk, as a Persian pavilion, although it's unclear why, um, because it has sort of it's a very simple boxy structure with uh, with Art Nouveau um, woodwork. This the structure interestingly serves as a kind of threshold for their meeting, this kind of neutral ground for their meeting that has no architectural symbolic significance uh, that would prefer one one denomination or the other or the ruler of one denomination or, or the other so so they start their um, encounter in this strange little cube and then that's how Muhammad Shah sort of gets initiated into Yildiz and goes uh, goes and resides in the Shale kiosk then afterwards so you've mentioned Ajem kiosk and that, that brings up the question of the language being used for these architectural types, the, the buildings, and how the Ottomans uh, translate potentially these, uh, these different words. Are there any uh, interesting examples that are worth mentioning of the movement of foreign words into the Ottoman context? Yes, the, there is a, a, an earlier instance where Sultan Abdul Majid is interested in a, a greenhouse that is manufactured in England to be brought over, and indeed it does get brought over, but uh, but after he he dies and Abdulaziz becomes the sultan, and they, in that transition, in that sort of moment of, of, of importation, the structure, uh, which is a simple glass greenhouse, g- enters the bureaucratic record as Billur Sarai, which, you know, sounds sounds loftier than the actual building itself, but but there's a beauty to that translation. Um, another catchword that I think the Ottomans are looking for in these catalogs or in, in pattern books that are, they're interested in, in transferring models from, and that is 
the word, the, the Ottoman Turkish word for rustic, which is rustai. And especially when you are building at a hilltop, the appeal of the rustic is, is, is you know, unquestionable. Um, so you see a lot, even in the bureaucratic documentation, and not just in, in, poet, in poetry, which you also see sort of repercussions of these kinds of words appearing in, in, in literature, in popular, popular literature. But rustai is a, is a word that sort of takes over. And um, even when the, when the archivist of, a, of the Yildiz Library or the librarian of the, of the Imperial Yildiz Library lists the names of these, of these ca- catalog magazines or architectural pattern books, he chooses his his um he doesn't translate directly he picks out catchwords that he knows is going to appeal to the patron or the builder uh, or the architect so rustai is one and then country home um is often translated as köy ebniyesi uh, as a sort of a country country home but a simpler version um and orangiri gets translated very frequently as orangiri, but phonetically written as such. And chalet also appears as, as chalet, again, phonetically written. So so they keep some words as is, and some, like rustai, sort of, I think, because of its romantic appeal, they choose as a, des- as a designation, not, not one that um, they, they sort of phonetically translate. So then, is are there any other narrative sources uh, besides these bureaucratic sources that you've uh, mentioned where we hear the mention of these buildings? Uh, surprisingly, the best narrative sources on these structures are mentioned by women who are either a part of the court or who are somehow connected to the court. And this is, I think, not a generalization, but the best types of descriptions of domestic environments in the Ottoman Empire, especially in the 19th century, come from women, whereas the men who inhabit these spaces are awfully quiet about, about why they choose to reside in these spaces. So f- with, with the case of Yildiz and Abdul Hamid's penchant for, for these timber structures, our best source is his daughter's memoirs, uh, Aisha Sultan, later Aisha Osmanoğlu, writes a beautiful memoir on her life in the palace and there are instances of 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 her talking about these structures being brought in uh, one of the highlights is is her mention of a of a japanese kiosk in fact being built in the palace after the devastating 1894 earthquake um, where she remembers the structure being used by his father after the earthquake when he when it seems like the the, the palace inhabitants are are scared to live in the structures, the pre-existing structures in the palace, and then the other case of a of a of a mention of the, of a chalet comes through, as I mentioned, uh, with the Khedive uh, Abbasilmi's wife Javidan Hanum, who was a, a Hungarian uh, woman who sort of went native, talking about this um, Swiss chalet being being brought into the the residence in in Chubuklu as a weird sort of out of place uh, structure that didn't fit in her imagination to the hilltops of, of Istanbul, this weird alpine hut. And then, of course, with, with the case of Yildiz's um, pre-Hamidian history, we have Leila Saz, the famous musician who resided in the court of Abdul Mejid, who actually spent a lot of her time in the 
the, the groves of Chiran immediately after they were um, they were landscaped. So there are these three wonderful memoirs that actually could um, could take you through the history of Yildiz through the um, uh, through the lives or biographies of of women. <laughs> Welcome back to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm with Dr. Dennis Tukar talking about the uh, prefabricated architecture and architecture of uh, Istanbul in the 19th century. So far, we've talked about the Yildiz complex itself, how uh, Abdulhamid in the later 19th century uh, took on uh, this this complex and added prefabricated buildings uh, and a, a distinct architecture style to it. We've talked about mail-order catalogues, and we've also talked about the the change in, in language and the adoption of these uh, foreign terms for these buildings, these structures being adopted by the uh, by the Ottoman court. And and finally, we've talked about the description of these spaces by women as well. Dennis, do, does the arrival of these portable structures uh, change the architectural landscape of the rest of Istanbul? I'm thinking particularly of people who potentially we wouldn't expect having access to these, so people outside of the of the palace. Is there some sort of democratization of this architectural design? I believe so. Um, in um, at the turn of the century, very savvy local construction companies take over the role of, of imported prefabrication by um, advertising their companies or their uh, manufacturing ateliers as, as sites where cheap and beautiful and efficient domestic structures could be built in no time. And, um, and you, you come across their advertisements in the most widely circulating newspapers like Sarvet Ifinun and Iktam. In fact, uh, one of the owners of these this lo- these local manufacturing sites facilities is Ahmed Isan, uh, who is the editor of Sarveti Funun. For a while, when uh, when the Hamidian censorship closes his business, he uh, decides that this is a very sort of lucrative job, and uh, partners up with another friend of his and opens the Ahurkapa Lumberyard, where they start building for a a class of of people who were not affiliated with the with the palace directly you know the doctors and and uh, and lawyers and 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 teachers of of Istanbul started acquiring land in the suburbs of the ever expanding suburbs of Istanbul and and Erankoy and the Princess Islands are uh, are two great examples and they wanted chalet like structures but the the end result of this of this desire was a sort of a spectacular array of of ex- eccentric experimental homes uh, that you still see if you're lucky, you know, sort of in architectural compounds now in their gardens. You see these sort of beautiful homes, and in fact, we have a, a case of a, a fictional doctor in Kırıkhayat on Ahmet Hamdi Tanpınar book, where uh, the doctor 
goes to study these structures in in Erenköy, Moda, and and the islands to come up with his own fantasy home. And none of these homes, the extant ones, look like the other. Um, and so I I I think that there was a a a, a wonderful competition in 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 creating domestic spaces in the ninth in the in the turn of the century. Sedatakka Aldama, one of the best architectural historians of the of the Ottoman Empire, terms this um, this strange phenomenon uh, the Erankoy style because the the best examples really were there. So, with the emergence of this Erankoy style, can we say that there's some kind of an Ottoman style as well, or is it very particular to this Erankoy area? There's a tendency in in heritage scholarship to talk about a timeless Turkish house or a timeless Ottoman house that is inevitably made of timber um, with a centralized sofa and a space, a private space and a, and, a, and a public zone. And sometimes in these types of texts, in these types of narratives, the, the turn of the century craze for the chalet type and its, and its quirky manifestations end up being absorbed into this into this narrative of a, of a timeless Ottoman house that takes you from I don't know say the 16th century all the way seamlessly to the to the 19th and 20th centuries but I do think that that this turn of the century phenomenon is very distinct it doesn't cohere in any way as a sort of an arc, uh, an Ottoman style because I don't think the buyers or the patrons or the homemakers wanted it or saw it as such uh, or didn't go to the to the local manufacturing house and said, "I want you know this this new Ottoman style house." I think the beauty of it is precisely in its distinctiveness that that each one is distinct from the other, and I I think it it points to a a, a really lovely moment of 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 competition um, between homeowners where we see a, 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 the vo- the voice of a, a consumer culture that we don't get to see in earlier periods, although I'm not claiming it didn't exist. Uh, this is just a very vibrant moment of this kind of competition because it was cheap to produce these houses. It was easy to install them and it was very easy to customize them. Uh, so these these home buyers looked at catalogs and pattern pattern books and then went and, and looked at the, the the, the structures that were already built by these companies and made decisions on their own that reflected their personal tastes, which I think is, um, is, is, is really um, wonderful to, to see. So I'm curious to know what the practicalities of, of these structures would be. Those that were not part of the palace would have, as you mentioned, seen the mail order catalogue, seen the patterns and chosen them and then gone to the local manufacturing houses, as I understand. But then how would the physical building be built? Whose, whose responsibility would that be? Would it be the foreign construction companies or the foreign importers? Or would they just be buying the material, uh, so the, potentially the foreign wood um, and, and, and bringing that in and having the local artisans build the, these structures? At a moment in, in time after the arrival of, of sort of these imported examples, the palace itself, the ateliers of the palace, start building their own versions. So I think the importation for the most part stops, although we, we come across advertisements in trade journals in the 20th century of these of these prefab companies. 
local facilities uh, and builders uh, learn how to how to make these, and they acquire they 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 also have their own little libraries that the the customers can come in and look through and make choices, and the wood. Uh, or the materials for these structures often come from the Black Sea. And we have a really interesting example of a a home economics journal or a home management encyclopedia, if you will, that is published um, by one of the scribes um, who worked in the Ildis Palace, where he has a section on an entry on house, Ev, that talks about, that talks about how you how you can go and and commission a house in in one of these local facilities what kind of products you should look for how much these materials would cost you depending on the size of the house and how to negotiate with the with the the local builder and so there is a a moment where it, it the the whole process becomes localized and standardized um and i think eranke style um, is a great example of that of that moment of localization. So I think the foreign manufacturing of these structures, for the Ottomans, it, it, it comes to a, a screeching halt the moment, and it's a very, very quick adaptation of local facilities taking over. So, you know, even though we still see them, see the, the foreign manufacturing companies advertise in journals circulating in the Ottoman Empire, it becomes really sort of, it, it, it is at that moment in time, in, at the turn of the century, in the hands of, of, the, of local producers. So we've certainly managed to trace the uh, importance of these foreign construction companies, these mail-order catalogues, these architectural designs of prefabricated buildings coming into the Ottoman world. Ideally, what needs to be uh, researched more on this? What, what are the further questions that arise from your work? I think looking deeper into these, uh, these local manufacturing facilities is something that intrigues me. Although I, I I don't know exactly what my archives will be, but I would like to get a sense of the patron and builder negotiations a little bit more, how the choices were made, how they were negotiated, how they were priced, how they were erected. There there's there's some good work done on on the Ahurkapa lumber yard, for example, um, by Damla Ajar and, and Deniz Maslum. Um, they have a, an article out um, recently on, on timber construction, post-earthquake timber construction in, uh, in imperial residences. So I think people are looking further into uh, this local production of quick and easy home building. And then there's also the question of the craft schools that are established during the Hamidian era, especially the one in Sultan Ahmed. I am interested in in looking at what these students are taught, um, what kind of materials, uh, what kind of books they read or study, for example, and um, how do they practice and what are the results of their their production is, is something that I'd be very interested in looking further and how is this, this this sort of artisan conceived in the the late 19th century where where you obviously have a very clear clash between industrial production and and handiwork and, and this is also i remind you this is a, a, a the real reason why i think 
Abdul Hamid is so interested in timber structures is because he's a carpenter himself. And his favorite pastime, you know, we see through memoirs of many people close to him, is to hide in his atelier and actually produce woodwork. And I think it's with 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 this kind of um, hobby that he gets interested in in opening up uh, or reestablishing uh, craft schools. And on that note, I think it would be a good time to end the discussion there. Dr. Denis Tudkar, thank you very much for joining us today for what has been a very thought-provoking delve into the realm of 19th century Istanbul architecture. Thank you, Thailand. It was really fun to talk about this sort of understudied moment in, architect- in the architectural history of the Ottoman Empire. If you'd like to find out more, you can head to our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, where there is a relevant bibliography to the topic discussed today. And do also like us on the Facebook page where you can find all the latest podcasts. From myself, Thailand Gingersh, thank you for listening. <laughs>